we're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to Afro Futures. Um, I'm going to say this is the third time that I've said this, but you may notice some slight difference in my voice. Um, it is not uh, because I am auditioning for a new role in an amazing play produced probably by Kenan uh, Scott, but um, I have expanders and they make me sound different. And so I just want to let the listeners know um, so that you can get a sense of, of how I sound and maybe adjust your ears a little bit. Um, but it's okay because we have an amazing guest here today uh, who hopefully will do more of the speaking than I will. So you won't have to suffer through um, listening to my lispy sound this afternoon. Um, on today's episode of Afro Futures, we have Clay Kane. Clay is defined in so many ways and I don't want to limit him to um, what I will offer up, but just a quick sense for those who may not know who Clay is. Clay is a journalist, an author, and television commentator. He hosts a show on Sirius XM and has, a, has had uh, a really long uh, career in, 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 in radio. I, I just, I've gotten to know him by being a listener and um, by being interviewed by him, and I'm happy that he's obliged me with having uh, him take on that role on this show. And so without further ado, welcome to Afro Futures. Thank you, brother. I'm really honored to be here. I was so happy when you asked me to come on. You've been on my show before. I admire your work and what you do so much. So I'm really honored to be here and thank you. Thank you very much. And it's, it's funny because I, in, in doing background for this, for this conversation, I, I saw so many, so many uh, thorough lines with like, your work and and not just as, as a as a personality as a as a journalist but as a as a as an activist and I've gotten a better sense and a more profound appreciation of what you do in your craft so I say this uh, in the most humblest of, of, of ways thank you for being on the show um, you're, you, if I'm not mistaken you know you, you started off in in local radio is that something you always thought you would do like what what made you want to do local radio and, and what, 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 what do you see as like how, what got you to that point? Because you have multiple mediums with which you communicate and radio is certainly one of them, but how have you gravitated towards that medium and what, what, what brought you there in the first place? Well, I think it all began uh, really when I was going to Rutgers University. Um, I'm from West Philly, I'm from Philly. I'm from Philadelphia and Washington State. I was raised in both areas, but predominantly in Philadelphia. And, you know, Philadelphia, when I was growing up, uh, there was a certain sense of activism. You know, we're talking about post the move bombing in 1984 in West Philadelphia, where an entire block in Philadelphia was bombed. Uh, there was a big Nation of Islam movement. There was a big Pan-African movement. So I really had these bits and pieces of just 
activism and just trying to be aware and woke and conscious. Now, I can totally admit that I was one of those young kids in my late teens and early 20s who didn't believe in voting, who felt like F the system, who felt like it does nothing for us and I'm not going to be engaged. And I even so much didn't believe in higher education, which, you know, I thought it was too expensive and whatever the case may be. I had a really, really horrible job. And they said, we won't fire you if you go back to school. So I went back to school. I went to Rutgers University, majored in black studies, and that changed my life. And I realized that I wasn't as smart as I thought I was, like most people in the early 20s realize. I realized there was so much I didn't know about my history. And the reason why I was so disconnected from the political system or from certain things is because I didn't realize uh, how much it was affecting me, right? I was believing, I don't wanna call it propaganda, but there was just a certain anger. Uh, and I mean that in, in, a, in, a, in a respectful way where I grew up just like nothing is working for us, you know? So why are we gonna be engaged? What I didn't realize is that if you're not voting in your local elections, if you're not voting in your city council, if you're not voting for your school board, uh, if you only vote when the presidential election comes along, then they can do whatever they, they wanna do for you, whatever, whatever they wanna do to you rather. Uh, so when I got some history and I really met some incredible teachers at Rutgers University, uh, really focusing on black studies. And I saw for the first time in a classroom, people who looked like me, for the first time in a classroom, saw people read narratives of people who had uh, similar struggles as me, whether it is Elaine Locke during the Harlem Renaissance, uh, whether it's Ida B. Wells, an iconic journalist, uh, so many people, Bayard Rushton. I said, wow, there are so many similarities here. It's not this, you know, uh, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. There's so many people who were like me. That really, really changed me. And so when I was in college, I began writing just for independent publications. And I was really always a writer at heart. And I was writing and writing, writing and hustling. And sadly, <laughs> I shouldn't say sadly, it was an opportunity. I got involved in entertainment journalism just to pay the bills. I didn't want to interview these, these celebrities, but I did it to pay the bills. And, but in each piece of work that was more pop culture centered, again, which I didn't want to do, I did my best to put in a bit of my personality, to try and ask thought provoking and provocative questions, uh, to try and ask questions that would push people's buttons and whoever I'm interviewing, try and make them think differently. Sometimes it didn't work, but sometimes it really did. And then eventually I got a call from WWRL in New York City, uh, one of the, it was Black Talk Radio. And they asked me to host a weekly show every Thursday, local radio. And that really changed my life. That really changed everything for me. Every, every week talking to people. And I was eventually, uh, you know, expanding to two hours and I would come in and I would fill in. And I just loved it because you're there every single day. And I was taught, it was, this was during the, my gosh, which presidential election was it? I think it was 2012, it may have been 2008, uh, but I'm there during an election year. I'm also there during, uh, during the, the New York City mayoral race. I'm interviewing Bill de Blasio and I'm interviewing tons of people, really, really just doing, just being engaged. And it was interesting to me and listening to the people. Uh, and then eventually I began doing some work with Viacom 
and I did a great doc called Holler If You Hear Me Black and Gay in the Church, really talking about homophobia in the black church, which is very personal to me. I was able to publish a book and eventually I landed a serious XM Urban View uh, by a great mentor of mine named Karen Hunter, uh, who really opened the door for me and saw the potential in me and, and gave me this really incredible platform. So that's that's been a bit of the journey and the trajectory. And there's this quote that I live by from James Baldwin, where he said, you have to go the way your blood beats. You have to go the way your blood beats. I sometimes say you have to go the way your blood boils, a bit of a remix there. Uh, but that's the way that I've looked at it, that it can be scary, I can be terrifying, but just going in the direction of how my blood beats. And I feel like if I do that, I'm on the right path. And whatever platform I've had, I have always tried to use that to bring on people who are doing different kinds of work, who are, have different kinds of perspectives, but where we're all on the same page. You know, I always say that black folks, we aren't a monolith, but we all have to be a monolith when it comes to white supremacy, full stop. That's what we have to be a monolith on. And if you, wanna, if you aren't on the same page when it comes to white supremacy, if you're on some Clarence Thomas, Senator Tim Scott kind of stuff, that's a problem, that's an issue. And we can be diverse in how we get there. We can be diverse in uh, how we examine these things, but we have to all be a monolith against white supremacy. And so with my platforms that I've had, I've tried to bring on people who are really doing great progressive uh, work that sees the future. This is a long game. This is not, you know, four years or eight years or 10 or 10 years or 20 years. This is a long game. And I feel like we're all doing, hopefully, the ones who are able to are doing the work to kind of pave the road. So there is a bit more access, closer to equity, uh, you know, closer to dismantling these oppressive structures uh, that we're all being hoodwinked by, that, we're, that they're all gaslighting us. So that's the way that I look at it. And that's how I've worked with my career and my journey. I appreciate you starting it though, in the kind of, because in many respects, what I think kind of pulled us into a connection is this kind of state-sanctioned violence against Black people. And starting it at MOVE in Philadelphia is a really interesting kind of spark point. I mean, everything you said, right, like um, about the, the time that, that you're situating that context in. And, and, and similar for me, growing up in New York City and then in the suburbs of New York City, in the late 80s, in the early 90s, in the 2000s as a millennial and seeing both significant gun violence. You know, my brother was killed in drive-by shooting. Um, and so seeing gang violence and seeing like, you can't walk down this street, you can't wear this color, like just, just how perverse it was in every part of our lives and, and seeing the trauma that that brought, but also seeing the, like the most corrupt police department, um, New York police department, in its corruption, in its over surveillance, in its kind of macho-esque approach, whether it was Abner Louima's assault, the murder of uh, Amadou Diallo, um, what happened post 9-11 and Muslim surveillance. And, you know, growing up black Muslim in that, that moment is a very, it is a genesis point for me. So, so when I hear you connect move and then um, the way that you've tried to talk about these issues, uh, it, it, it connects with me, and especially because we, our, our approach or our connection happened largely in response, almost basically a year ago at this point, around this 
national conversation, this what people want to call racial reckoning, where there is a discussion around, you know, different visions for safety, different ideas about the, the role that law enforcement has in our community, this different approaches because of what we've seen has failed and not failed because of haphazard unintentionality. In fact, intentionally designed to facilitate these outcomes is always going to perpetuate these same outcomes. And so I, I guess as a person who did have a, a regular weekly talk show um, where you were doing local local radio, connecting with people who had conversations locally, there's this kind of meta-narrative in the country right now um, around race and racism, but also around policing. And the discussion is situated in what I fear is a repeat of what happened in the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. Where we see incidents of increases in uh, gun violence or incidents in violence um, in communities and it becomes blown to such a proportion um, that becomes a tool to kind of justify new forms of systematic oppression. So stop and frisk is deemed unconstitutional. New York City is not gonna do it. Bail reform happens, you know, we have to give people their constitutional rights, crazy idea in a, in a democracy. Um, and law enforcement doesn't want to police communities uh, or wants to give communities a sense as one former law enforcement person said, a sense of like what it's like if we're gone. And now everyone is like, we need more police, right? Like we need yeah. more police in schools. We need, we don't need to defund the police. We need to give police more money. And I, I'm a little concerned because it seems in some respects crazy, like the same actors then are back again. And even, even groups that tremendous respect for. Now I'll say to be transparent, I'm a member uh, and have been a member uh, of the National Action Network um, for many years and yeah. have tremendous respect for the National Action Network um, and, and it as an institution. Um, but I also take issue with the way that Reverend Sharpton in particular phrases this, this challenge as if um, as he says, oftentimes a lot of liberals don't really have a sense of what uh, is going on in these communities are telling these communities that they don't need, they need to do defund police and that's not what they need. I actually do think that's what we need. And, and I think that it does a disservice. So I'm interested in getting your perspective because whether it's MOVE, whether it's George Floyd, there's a continued repetition in US history of significant police abuse. And then the justification oftentimes with black uh, leadership, and I'm not placing blame on black leaders, but there is an involvement oftentimes as in the 90s crime bill, it seems that we're in a moment where we have opportunity for reform and people are suggesting that we need not do so. And I just want to get your thoughts on that whole problem. Yeah, you know, I've been talking about this a lot. So I'm 44 years old, so I'm a bit older than you. I remember in Philadelphia, people protesting on the street in the early 90s, in the late 80s, asking for more police. I mean, I, I remember this vividly. I was a teenager, maybe even younger than that, but I remember this. There was a song by Public Enemy, 911 is a joke in your town. Like there was a narrative that when you call the police, they don't come, we need more police. There was a song called Self-Destruction by, by a bunch of amazing hip hop artists. And the first, and one of the first lines 
is talking about black on black crime, which is a narrative that I can't stand. I can't stand when we try and racialize crime. You know, when, when you think about uh, the Italian mafia, when you think about white on white crime all through all through New York, which was violent and, and they were making millions of dollars, nobody calls it white on white crime. So what I really fear right now, what you're saying is what I've been saying for a long time, and I want everybody who is in a black or brown neighborhood to really hear us on this, is that I am afraid that we're about to have the crime reform bill 2.0. It is on the verge of happening. Crime reform bill 2.0. History is repeating itself. And what really confuses me is that during the 2020 election, you know, I have my show on Sirius XM two hours a day, uh, Monday through Friday. Every other call that I was getting was about the horrendous crime reform bill. It all would increase mass incarceration, which it did, all these complaints about it. And now I'm getting all these calls saying we need more police, more police, more police. Things are too crazy right now. I don't know why we think repeating, repeating policies that we did decades ago is going to help us this time around. I don't know why we think that. A man with a gun is not going to save everything. That's just not what it is. We've seen this before. We've been down this road before. So I am really terrified. It's not just New York. It's not just Philly. It's not just Oakland. It's not just Chicago. It's all over. So what's going to happen? There are people, respectfully, I've seen religious leaders demanding more police. I've seen this recently. This is exactly what happened in 1994. To Reverend Sharpen's credit, he marched against the 94 crime reform bill. Jesse Jackson spoke out against the 94 crime reform bill. But this is happening again. And I and you look at right now in New York City, for example, Eric Adams. Eric Adams, somebody in, in 2020, said that stop and frisk was a great tool. Mm -hmm. He called it a great tool, a tool that was deemed unconstitutional. And then Eric Adams says that it has to be used the right way. How can we use a relic of Jim Crow the right way? So I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned. And I moved to New York in 98 during the Giuliani and Bloomberg years. I was stopped incessantly, mainly outside of the subway. That's where I was stopped, incessantly. Uh, because I live in I live in Jersey. I don't live directly in New York, but Jersey's Jersey and New York were right across the bridge. I always worked in New York, paid taxes in New York. So you're absolutely right. We have to really decide if we want a progressive candidate. And I look at the presidential election. I like I like President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. They have done some good work. But there was all this talk of the black agenda. There were candidates who had clear black agendas very early. I didn't get the support. Secretary Julian Castro had a robust, clear black agenda talking about creating a national database, which is in the George Floyd Policing Act, talking about decertifying police officers so they can't go to a neighboring town and get rehired after gunning down a black person, uh, talking about reparations in a real way. Even Senator Elizabeth Warren she had, a, she had a really clear racial justice agenda. So I get confused when I hear this need, you've got to support us Black agenda. And then candidates have it and we don't support them. Even the mayoral race, yeah. Maya Wiley, Diane Morales, I interviewed both of them. And they spoke specifically about not just people of color issues, Black issues. How can we solve issues in our community? So I am concerned. I am scared, and but I don't want to blame the common voter. Yeah, yeah. The truth of the matter is that 
We don't teach, our schools don't teach the crime reform bill. Our schools don't teach the, the history of Rockefeller and when, when Richard Nixon was, uh, was um, a governor of California. You know, our schools also don't teach that it didn't just start with the 94 crime reform bill. There was this thing called the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act under Reagan. There was this other thing called the 1988 Anti-Drug Abuse Act under Reagan. So this wasn't just boom, crime reform bill. It was other things that was just happening and happening and going down. You know, it was all, it was all being planned. It was all being created. And then Clinton really, really solidified it with Joe Biden who co-wrote it, Bernie Sanders who voted for it, right? Jim Clyburn who voted for it, Maxine Waters didn't, didn't vote for it. But that said, you're right. And we have to really be aware y'all, this could get very dangerous. It could get worse. But sadly, when we hear crime, all we think of is armed police. I mean, Eric Adams in New York wants to reinstate the plainclothes police unit that according to the New York Times, not me, was creating havoc in black communities. He wants to reinstate that. And this is a black mayor. Let's go back to MOVE. Who was the mayor of Philadelphia during the MOVE bombing in 84? Wilson Good the city's first black mayor. So all our skin folk aren't our kin folk, to quote Zora Neale Hurston. And so we have to really be aware and think of what progressive politics really looks like. If you don't like the word progressive, fine. What black politics looks like. Study George Jackson, Angela Davis, Fred Hampton. What does it really look like? So I hear you, brother. And it, when I think of the future, uh, it scares me. And I'm telling you, if 20 years from now we're complaining about some policy that's pushed through and it's cr increased mass incarceration even more, then I'm going to have to pull up this video <laughs> and say, <laughs> we spoke about this. And there wasn't social media in 94, 93, 92. But I'm telling you, we're, we're about to go down the crime reform bill 2.0. And if that is the case, there are people who are outspoken about it. You know, I don't want gun violence in our communities. No, we don't. I don't want that at all. I don't want to see people being gunned down. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to see that. I mean, here's the other issue too, that now because of these damn AR-15s, the most popular gun in the country, that these guns are being crossed, going across state lines. New York has strict gun laws, but these people can drive seven, eight hours from North Carolina. From so I, I could go on forever with this, but I'm with you brother and it's scary. I want to dig in a little bit more. I don't want to spend too much time on it just because what I've found over the last year or so is that we have to talk about the issues and get people to understand the problem and, and unpack it in a way that's accessible. But we also have to do a lot of work with like helping people to, to imagine that we actually do have a different reality that we can create. And what we aspire to do here is to lay it out for people to explain it, but also help them imagine that this ain't how it has to be, that it can be different, that we don't have to repeat the history of the 90s or the 80s. You know, Ehrlichman who worked for Nixon as domestic policy advisor said, you know, we'll vilify them night in and night out on the daily news, right? Like, so to your right. point about like, the, the need to be afraid exists because the media has really done a, they continue to do this service of filling in people's minds this hype around violence and, and, and being a tool to perpetuate this idea that it is 
uh, an increase in crime when the data says actually crime is decreasing. Yes, there are, are upticks since the pandemic in some levels of violent crime, but again, since the pandemic and what happened in the pandemic with respect to the number of black communities that have been devastated, the amount of traumas that have been continuously cast upon this community, whether it's the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, public lynching of Ahmaud Arbery, or um, the, the hundreds of thousands of people who have died to COVID um, in our community as well. So, you know, I'm not creating a space to justify the violence, but we have to put it in a context, right? That like, it, 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 like you don't go from a retreat in violent crime to having it spawn up during a pandemic and not say that there's some connection to the way that these issues impact our communities. But we, we don't spend enough time talking about how we get ourselves to a new reality. And so I do wanna spend a little bit more time on this issue because I also am afraid and concerned. Um, and I also think that people need to, to not feel that we ought to retreat because if, if you listen to like all of the, the pundits Everyone is is like you know defund the police was the dumbest thing and I'm like ah I don't I don't we talked about this last year I'm like I don't see the empirical data that says that's the case actually um, there wouldn't be a conversation about the role of police in our communities if it weren't for that conversation there wouldn't be a discussion about increasing mental health services there wouldn't be a conversation about a number of things that that we are now discussing that are viable that otherwise wouldn't have been possible. Um, so we should talk, we should spend a little bit more time on it. But as you think about what other lessons we can learn, both from the way that the media helps to tell this story and the way that we don't necessarily capture, we capture the fear that people have, but don't capture like the second part of them saying, yes, I think that there's a violence problem, but if I could have something other than police, what it would look like, we only fi are fixated on it's got to be a guy with a gun, as you say. So what, what, what are some of the possibilities that we could explore, right? Because we talked about it on this show, but you know, you're, you're nationally syndicated. You, you talk to more folks on a regular basis. And I'm curious to, to hearing what are your listeners telling you as to like, what are the things they want to envision uh, outside of this current paradigm that we see ourselves in policing? Yeah, so uh, this is really complicated because, as I said earlier, you know, we aren't a monolith. Uh, we should be a monolith when it comes to white supremacy. Uh, we have to all be against that. But Lord knows we're not when it comes to policing. It's very, very, it's varied and it's different. So um, here's one of the things that I say, and I know this is trite and people are tired of me saying it, but I'm just going to start here. Uh, in some areas, you can vote for your sheriff. In some areas, you can vote for your DA. In some areas, you can vote for your prosecutor. So one of the things that I would love is epic, huge voter turnout. You know, in 1868, we had 80% Black voter turnout. Black women couldn't vote. In 1868, that's how we were able to elect all those Black folks throughout the South during Reconstruction. 80% Black voter turnout. We were able to take over parts of South Carolina. So some of these answers are right in the past. So I look at it that way, that if we had, again, all your skin folk and kin folk, Larry Krasner is a, is, a, is a white brother in Philadelphia who is a boss and doing great, great things, but making sure that we have people that who are on the same page that we are voting, we are, we are putting them into office, people who actually have power. So voting locally, 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 locally is one thing that I try and push. 
and I try and always stress. Uh, one of the things too, I know this is complicated and it's hard to do and it kind of ties into critical race theory is that I believe that white supremacy begins at home. Then I, be then I believe that it's solidified in the schools. And so if people aren't teaching, if people aren't learning basic, basic history, basic history, then it's easy to brainwash them. Then it's easy to feed them propaganda. Then it's easy to keep them uh, docile if we're not feeding them basic history. And what's scary about these, which really isn't critical race theory, it's just critical race education being banned all over the country, is that they, they, saw, the pro they saw what black folks can do to win an election in, in Atlanta, in Philly, in Detroit and um, Native Americans in Arizona. So they're terrified of that. So they're pushing back. And I believe that if we were able to teach people actual education, cross-cultural education, I think that would have an effect on policing. I interviewed a former police officer who now teaches at, at a John Jay College. And she said that she thinks that every, every, every police officer should have several black history courses that they're walking in not knowing the constitution, not knowing history, not knowing any of those things. So I think those kinds of things would really empower us. And as far as what it would physically look like, I think it's actually quite simple. It would look like the suburbs. They got it figured out and there's violence in the suburbs, kind of like, and I know there's more in, in areas where there, there's more people, but it's kind of like, how could we have done the crack epidemic? How could we have changed that? The way we did the opioid epidemic, that's how we could do it. How can you do it? Well, why don't you just imagine for, for a minute that, you know, Tamir Rice was actually a 12 year old white, white boy named, I don't know, Chad. You know, I, I, we have seen it work, whether it is in an urban white area or a poor white area or a rural white area, we have seen it work. And why does it work? Why are folks able to deescalate? Why are they, I mean, there's one story I covered on my show there was a man who fired 200 rounds at police. I think his name was Benjamin Murdy, if I have that right. Double check that for the folks out there listening. He fired 200 rounds at police. Police never fired back once. So this goes beyond just training. This goes beyond retraining. This goes into a fundamental change on the structural underpinnings of how safety works in our country. And I want to be as safe as possible from police and from other folks outside of police who want to do us harm. And if we can't reimagine that, if we can't really look at that from a structural point, point of view, then it's going to be very hard to change it. And the other thing that, that I say, uh, I think the, the budget for the NYPD is $11 billion. They could spare $1 billion. One billion, just one little billion, and no police officer will lose their job and invest it right into communities. So we have after school programs. So we have public schools that are being fully funded and not being ignored because there are so many charter schools. There's a way to do that. But at the end of the day, man, it goes down to policy. It's policy. You can't change people's hearts. It's policy. And that, that's just kind of where I am at this point. You know, I think of Thurgood Marshall saying that he is somebody who wanted to create change within the system. And at this point in my life, uh, I am down to a policy level. So I want to get more Jamal Bowman's in office. 
I want to get more Ayanna Presley's in office. Uh, I want to get more folks like that in office. It is policy, policy, policy. And last thing I'll say, as far as making actual change, what we have to do, we have to call our congressperson, download the Five Calls app, and you call them. They document every time you call them. You call them. You say what you want. You push for certain things. You say, this George Floyd Policing Act must be passed. You say HR 40 must be passed. You call them, you reach out to them. You, you flood them with calls, you flood them with emails. You wanna know why it works? Why evangelicals do it? Why evangelicals do that? They make sure it's done. So we have to reach out to our elected officials and call them out and hold them accountable. And I think that's bits and pieces of how we could see some kind of change. But if we have innovative ideas, but nobody in place to really put those ideas in place, that those ideas to work, then we hit an impasse. We hit an impasse. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm reflecting a bit about the way that all these kind of are continued streams of a, of a kind of repeated conversation in some respects. And, and by, by that, what I mean is the vast amount of pushback, right? The sense that like, um, we need more police is, is, is a response, right? Like it's, again, when we did bail reform in New York State, like we were able to get bail reform passed and then we had a retreat on, on many of the measures we were able to effectuate the year later because DAs and police departments and the media were able to create this hype of, of murderers and rapists being released from jails, which is not actually true, but it didn't matter because it became reality once the public perceived that. And you can see that strategy, that game plan in many respects being replicated in how both we're talking about critical race theory, right? Like trying to deconstruct these systems and the way that white supremacy has been embedded into the law and deconstructing that and the types of ways that its teaching and its practice are being suppressed, if you will, while also trying to suppress voters, right? Because when you are actually conscious of the way that the structural inequities have existed in this country, theoretically, you might want to then vote differently, right? Yeah. Unless, unless you're like, unless you're just an asshole, which like, then that's your thing. Like, I, it's okay, it's racism, but I still need my tax cut. And right. for some people, that's the case. And that's-, that's Or I case. won't vote at all. I won't even show up. Right. That's, so, that's the largest voting block, non-voters. Exactly. Go ahead, sorry. Again, these are all these kind of systems of oppression that cooperate together. But it was crazy because like a part of the black radical tradition is being anti-militarism. And you have General Milley, right? Who is head of like the Joint Chiefs of Staff talking about critical race theory in more eloquent ways and more clear and more defensible than I think probably many people in the activist space, um, people who are pundits on the news, et cetera, and whose name I won't names I won't raise. It, it was an interesting contrast because in one sense, his comments were completely on. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that there's, I'm impressed, but I'm also not surprised, right? Um, and in another sense, um, I look at the way that Nicole Hannah-Jones recently ha has been able to basically kind of like take the moment that the attack that she was getting for uh, the 1619 project, the attacks on critical, critical race theory, which have been like made to be so many other things that it's not. And 
her basically deciding that she's going to walk away from that, which I respect entirely. And she really did a good job in, in her public statement, both articulating like the, the hope that she had as a, an alumnus of UNC and wanting to give back to this community and not trying to embarrass them and still trying to like let do the work. But like, how the hell can I work at a place that like is going to basically give me a second standard? Um, and then to say, I'm gonna bring this to an HBCU, like Howard. I, like there's so many levels of respect that I have for her because of that. But um, I, I'm, I'm curious as to like how, how these things manifest themselves in ways. And one response to that is like the way you know, Nicole has responded by basically saying, we need to actually invest in our brightest. And it's always been HBCUs that have been creating opportunities for us to be able to advocate and advance and build our existence. And I went to a private white institution, I went to Syracuse University, and there was a point that a, that a journalist raised that like, I, I agree with in many senses where I'm paraphrasing, she said like, for many of us, we felt like we have to go to a private white institution because if we can make it in their world, then like we'll have the respect and, and, and maybe, um, uh, ability to, to pr pr pursue our life in the ways that we want, and then realizing that that actually is all bullshit too. Um, I went through a lot of, and, and, and fighting through a lot of some issues at my private white institution that many generations of black students and brown students have been fighting. And why do we continue to put ourselves in those spaces if they're gonna create the types of outcomes for us? And so is Nicole's approach the best way or like, Obviously, people got to do what's best for them, but I want to get your thoughts on 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 how critical race theory and the attack on it as a proxy for the broader attack on not allowing people to understand the the, the reality of America's history and, and and public policy and its implications, so that you can then get away with um, suppressing people's vote and, and reducing the policy changes that you speak of that need to happen. Yeah, uh, so for Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, I think it's great for her. And I, I love what she did and, and you know, kind of what you're saying, this idea of just kind of begging the gatekeepers to let you in, uh, begging the gatekeepers to see you, begging the gatekeepers to, to acknowledge that, you know, you are, you know, you are um, gifted enough to be, to be in, their, in, their, in their world. And Nicole Hannah-Jones said the answer was no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, y'all made this an international story. I was minding my business and y'all decided to not give me tenure. This position always had tenure. And so she said no. But it is important to acknowledge that Nicole Hannah Jones is able to do that, right? That's really important to acknowledge. She's able to do that, able to go to Howard University because uh, she's an icon at this point and she's able to have, she has the access to do that. Um, me, I wanted to go to an HBCU. I couldn't afford it. So I went to a state school, I went to Rutgers University. I just simply couldn't afford to go to HBCU and there's no HBCU in New Jersey. So I just couldn't afford to do it. So I think part of it is access in that way that we have to make sure that we acknowledge. When it comes to critical race theory, and I'm, I just, I gotta go back to history for this. Uh, for those that don't know, this push, first of all, there's been laws and policies banning uh, teaching black history and indigenous history for years, right? You can go back to the 90s. There was things coming up as far as this is not good to teach. But this ban on black history, critical race theory, black and indigenous history is a really a remixed version of what's called the lost cause. 
and I encourage folks to look that up. Shortly after the Civil War, these uh, good white folks in the South said they decided to basically change the narrative of what the Civil War was really about. It wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. The Daughters of the Confederacy began writing all these textbooks and controlling all these textbooks. M much, much of them came out of Texas and saying that and telling their own version of history. And much of those textbooks, the foundation of them, are still being used today, believe it or not. They've been updated and revised in a new edition, but the root of it comes from the Daughters of the Confederacy and this idea of the lost cause telling a lie about the Civil War. That's all this is. This country has refused to reckon with its actual history. When you look at Germany, for example, there is no high school in Germany called Adolf Hitler High School. None. Zero. Zero. You're not, you're not going to see that. The, the, the Nazi flag is banned in Germany. I have friends who went to school in Germany, elementary school, a uh, 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 middle school, high school, and they said that they were learning about Nazi Germany in the third grade. Of course, in a way they could understand as children. And then as they, go, they went further up, they were experts on it. But we don't do that here. So again, it's easy to brainwash people. And here we are in 2021, and you have bans on, on history being told because there are some parents out there that makes them feel like my white child will feel bad about themselves if they find out who Thomas Jefferson really was, which is ridiculous. It is stupid that you would actually think that it's gonna harm your child. And what they don't know is they can learn about white folks in history who pushed back against slavery, like the abolitionist John Brown. They're just about now, to say, John Brown and Harper's Ferry. Right. They can learn about the, they can learn about Thaddeus Stevens. I didn't like the stuff he did in the very beginning with, with, with Charity Butler in, in New Jersey. But outside of that, like later on, you can learn about people where where there's there's people who are fighting back, right? You can learn about that kind of stuff, but they don't want you to learn that. So it's a tale as old as time in this country. It is the lost cause. It is erecting Confederate leaders in the early 1900s. And this, going back to the crime reform bill, and we're going to see a new version of it coming soon, it appears, it is that this country has not reckoned with its ills. And until we do that, we're going to continue to repeat ourselves and have this avalanche of madness. You know, I can recall with the January 6th insurrection, I heard people say, this was America's darkest day. It was America's darkest day. We've never seen this before. There was a Confederate flag in the Capitol. I said myself, I was like, this ain't America's darkest day. No. I mean, for me, Philando Castile dying on Facebook Live yep. was like close to America's darkest day. Uh, when I think of the massacre in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when I think of the massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina, when I can think of the massacre in Elaine, Arkansas, when I think of MOVE, going back to MOVE, an airstrike, an airstrike on, on an entire block in 1984. Uh, no, and yeah, the Confederate flag was in the Capitol for the first time. But for me, the sentiment has been in the Capitol for a very long time. You, you know, so- Former Confederates who were senators and congressmen. Right. So like- There's Confederate statues all over DC. Yeah. Uh, so I think that when we fail to learn about who we are and what we've done and 
literal, there are some bans on critical race theory that they want a teacher to have a body cam and charge them $5,000 if they're taught, if they're caught being, they're caught teaching critical race theory. This is where we are. And the truth of the matter is, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm on broken record here. Many of these states have Republican state legislators. Uh, many of these states uh, have serious control over their local politics. And Republicans have been plotting and planning since Lyndon B. Johnson signed that 1964 Civil Rights Act. And since then, white people in a majority, not all, but in a majority, have voted Republican. They've been planning ever since. The Southern strategy, they've been planning ever since. So the other side, they're plotting, they have an agenda, they will do whatever they can do to win. This talk about the filibuster, I guarantee you, if Republicans get control of the House and the Senate in the midterms, they'll end that filibuster and they'll put it back in before they're out. Yeah. <laughs> like and that. Then, so, and then the Democrats will follow those rules. Right, exactly. So um, I know it's I'm getting kind of redundant here, but I've given up on changing people's hearts and I'm focused on changing policy. And all of that said, I don't feel doomed. And I say that because we have to acknowledge that we are going upstream. Where we are right now, the country was not designed for this. The country was not designed for you to be doing what you're doing. The country was not designed for me to have a national radio show on this thing called Sirius XM. The country was never designed to have a black woman vice president who has immigrant parents. We are going upstream. We are going against the grain. So there has been progress, not nearly enough, not nearly enough, but I still have a sense of optimism in me when I talk to folks like you, when I talk to folks like Malcolm Kenyatta, who is running for Senator in Pennsylvania, when I talk to Chevron Jones in Florida, there was a new group of young people who before it was very hard to even get access to policymaking. That's changing, there's dents there. And so I have to only hope in 10, 15 years that maybe we're gonna have uh, a flock of people in there who are really progressive and understand the need for transformative change, not just reform, but transformative. So with all that said, there was no, I mean, I have to be careful saying this. With all that said, someone like a Stacey Abrams, I'm happy we have her right now, who is pretty much a household name. There is, you know, I, I was gonna say there wasn't a Stacey Abrams when I was younger, but maybe there was, but I didn't know because I wasn't engaged enough. So I don't want to dismiss the work of Carolyn Mosley Braun, who ran for president, who was senator of Illinois and, and so on. But I believe there are cracks in this, in this, in this lie. I have some optimism here. And I know that we're going against the grain. So that's going to take work. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And, but I don't feel doomed. I don't feel doomed. That's a good place for us to end on. And I, I think... As, as much of the opportunity exists for history to repeat itself, it also means that there's an opportunity for us to stop it, right? It, and it actually means that if the system is doubling down, um, trying to reduce our ability to imagine a more liberated future, it means that it's actually appealing to more people than they expected it to appeal to. I think you're right in the sense of needing to leverage every tool in the toolkit, including voting, especially at the local level, 
uh, because there's so much tremendous power your local mayor has over appointing your police chief, uh, so much power that your city or common councils have by managing and being responsible for the budget of those cities, so much power that your county executive or your sheriff, you can elect them or if you're in a community where that's the case, there's so much tremendous power at the local level and, and our ability to implicate them at the local level is, 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 is higher. That doesn't mean there aren't barriers, but um, I think you're right that we, we do have much to have hope for and um, much more to fight. And if we're not gonna allow history to repeat itself, then we, we've got to buckle down and, and keep the work going. So I wanna thank you so much for being here today on Afro Futures, taking my list aside. Um, there's so much more that I would have loved to have explored with you, but that just means I'll have to figure out another time to get you back on. Absolutely. Um, but thank you so much. You've, you've been listening to Afro Futures. My name is Yusef and today's guest has been Clay Kane of The Clay Kane Show. Um, amazing, amazing brother and, and super appreciative for having you. Thank you for being here. Afro Futures is produced by WAER Public Radio with producers Joe Lee and Kevin Kloss. Thank you.